Hello, hello. I am Ashley Caudill, Senior Instructional Designer at the School of Education and Human Development at the University of Virginia, and welcome to Designed for Online. In this podcast, we will discuss hot topics around online teaching and learning. We will be posting new episodes the first and third Tuesday of every month, so be sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out. In his hierarchy of needs, Maslow positioned the need for belongingness between safety and esteem. University students' sense of belonging influences their academic achievement, retention, and persistence. And in his book, College Students' Sense of Belonging, Terrell Strayhorn writes that students who experience lower feelings of belonging struggle with motivation and often perform poorly on assignments and tests. If we know that a student's sense of belonging is highly influenced by their engagement with faculty and peers, how can we as educators support a student's experience and ensure they feel welcomed and a sense of belonging in both a traditional and digital class environment? Today's episode features three members of the UVA community who will give us insight on practical ways we can encourage students' feelings of belonging on campus and in your classes. Hello everyone and welcome to Design for Online. Today's episode features three members of the UVA community who is going to give us insight on practical ways we can encourage students' feelings of belonging on campus in our classrooms. So thank you ladies so much for being here today. If you wouldn't mind, could you quickly introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure, thanks for the invitation to be here today, Ashley. Um, my name is Catalina Payetas-Guerra and I am the Director of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion um, at the School of Education and Human Development. Thanks for having us, Ashley. I'm Jessica Livingston and I'm the Director of Student Affairs for the School of Education and Human Development. Thanks for having me back again, Ashley, two months in a row. Um, I'm Bernadette Porio um, and I'm the school's online student support specialist and I'm super excited to be here. Okay, so I figured why don't we go ahead and just jump right into the questions if that's okay with you. So the first question I have is what are some simple things faculty and staff can do right now to promote a welcoming atmosphere for all of our students? And on the flip side, what are some things that they should avoid doing? So I think one thing that works well for online courses, if you're using Zoom, you can open up your Zoom room early or keep it open later past the end of the class time just to allow students to kind of spend that time connecting with you. I know other faculty will set up specific times via Zoom or obviously if you feel comfortable doing in-person office hours for like a 10 minute meet and greet. But I think the most important thing, if you're doing that, is to kind of clarify with students, like, okay, this is the time to come and connect with me. You don't have to have a question about the class. I just want to get to know you. And of course, you can ask questions if you need to. I think one thing that faculty and staff can do is to offer opportunities for in classrooms for those relationships, not only to be built professor to student, but also to be built student to student. So I know that sometimes icebreakers has this kitschy quality to it, 
But I think reminding ourselves that so much of what's been characteristic of the pandemic has been isolation and reducing so many things to a transaction or a task to be completed, that it's kind of had this dehumanizing effect for a lot of workspaces, educational spaces. And so reintegrating opportunities to both be a human in front of other students. So sharing something about your day, about your week, about yourself, I think then creates that atmosphere in which everyone's reminded that they're bringing each time they come to a class or a workspace, their whole humanity. And that brings with it its ups and its downs that are sometimes invisible unless we make them visible with these kinds of explicit get, you know, get to know you activities. And it's really something that is best integrated as a regular praxis. I 100% agree with that. And something that I've talked to my faculty about when it's the beginning of the semester, my faculty will be like, students just aren't talking. And I ask them, I'm like, well, have you opened up? Like, do they know about you? Well, no, I'm the instructor. They don't want to know more about me. And I'm like, if you open up to them, they're going to feel comfortable to open up to you. And then once they start opening up and talking a little bit about their lives, then students are like, it's okay for me to open up or, Hey, I have a dog too, or I like to go hiking and it helps build those connections naturally. Yeah. I think it gets back to modeling modeling the kind of atmosphere that we want to have in a classroom by engaging in that vulnerability first ourselves. Something I add, because you in the question posed, what are some things to avoid doing? And I feel like sometimes we make us, we may make assumptions about our students like, oh, well, they, they're in this class, so they really care, or they're in this class, so they know about diversity or whatever. And we're maybe assuming that they have a background or a knowledge or an identity that we don't really know unless we ask, right? So I think the pandemic has really exacerbated maybe mental health issues or the lack of connections that we're having. I feel like we have to be more purposeful in not assuming things about our colleagues, our students, our faculty, our staff. And I just think that is so important, especially because the pandemic, again, has highlighted that we, our students, you know, have a lot going on. They're not just students. Um, they're teachers, they're educators, they're working full-time, they may, they may have families, they may be caretakers, they may have part-time jobs. So just considering that in your interactions with students, whether online, on grounds, part-time, full-time, graduate, undergraduate, I just think that's so important. I just want to add here, one thing I think faculty sometimes do or instructors is like encouraging folks to turn their camera on. Um, and I think sometimes our students just like need a break. They may be taking lots of back-to-back courses. They may be having a hard day. So thinking about different ways that folks can engage, like using the chat is a good way to ask just kind of to do like a two-word check-in or something like that. And also going back to the assumptions piece, like assuming a student who has missed consecutive courses, you know, just isn't engaged or interested in the topic or the class or, you know, kind of like, oh, they've just pushed this to the side. We've been encouraging our faculty to really connect and be aware when students aren't there. Just a quick check-in, like if someone doesn't attend your class, students, I think, appreciate kind of like, hey, just checking in to make sure you're doing okay. I know there's a lot going on. That would be a good way to resolve that. Okay, thank you guys. What are ways community members such as faculty, staff, and students, how can they demonstrate that someone's presence and contributions are valuable? 
So this makes me think of love languages. And if you're on my work team, you know that my number one love language is affirmation. If you feel like I've done something well, or even if you like my outfit, I love to hear it. But I feel like that goes so far, especially in a virtual space, right? Maybe going the extra mile and typing a comment like, thanks for sharing, or I really like that point, or can you tell me more about that? I think that goes a really, really long way. I agree with that. And one thing that I found in regards to giving feedback to a peer, sometimes people focus on the negative a lot of the time, because it's so easy to say, well, this needs to change and this needs to change. But I'm always say, talk about what you liked about it. So you can boost their confidence and they can feel as if they are doing something right. I echo burn. I think that we underestimate the amount of affirmation that takes us as people from surviving to thriving. And so I think that we forget that giving affirmation that's specific is as valuable to efficacy, to creating a climate in which everybody is working not only collaboratively, but really helping each other thrive. It's not an added thing. It's not something that's like, oh, you know, if I have time, I'll get around to letting them know how well they're doing. You know, it should really be seen as part of a work process and and part of the process as well of feedback, right? But there's sometimes a general feedback that can be positive. Like you're generally doing great. And then you get really into specifics with, you know, critical feedback. That's really important to, you know, helping us hone our skills and to be, you know, to do really well in the spaces that we're in. But what if we adapted that model of specificity to affirmation and we didn't see it as something that's just, oh, you know, of course you're doing great. You're a great, you know, student, or of course you're doing great. You know that your work is always wonderful, but saying, you know, I specifically really loved the graphic that you chose for that flyer, or I really loved the example that you brought up in class the other day, or in that feedback, it was so clear that you took your fellow students' words and really thought about them and really, you know, connected with them in a way that spurred a classroom environment environment um, that's more inclusive. That's really specific and helps people, you know, really think about themselves more uniquely in a classroom environment and think about their contributions as ones that are valuable and that are meaningful. It's funny because I think that advice, Catalina, is so good to be specific with your affirmation. And in fact, that's advice that they give for parents of young children not to like dilute affirmation. Um, like, oh, you're doing such a great job. Like you are doing a great job doing X things. And I like making that connection, thinking about how adults need that as well. I couldn't agree more, Jessica. But why don't we stop here and take a brief pause for this episode's brain break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about microaggressions and actions faculty can take to create an inclusive and welcoming classroom culture. Hello everyone, I hope you are enjoying the conversation. I know I am, but I wanted to take a moment to give you a little bit of a brain break by presenting this episode's trivia question. But first, I wanted to give you the answer to last episode's trivia question, which was, which mammal has no vocal cords? The answer, a giraffe. I personally had no idea that giraffes didn't have vocal cords. But now that I think of it, I guess they really don't make a noise. The more you know. So now let's talk about this episode's trivia question. Area 51 
is located in which U.S. state? Curious what the answer is? Be sure to tune into our next episode to find out. And we're back. So before the break, we talked about how faculty can create a welcoming atmosphere for all students. But I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about microaggressions. So what are microaggressions and how can somebody become more aware of them? Microaggressions have been likened to the metaphor of sort of death by a thousand paper cuts. They're a way of engaging either in conversation or action with somebody that in some way is invalidating or making assumptive things about their experience in the world. Microaggressions are insidious insofar as they can often feel like for the people experiencing them that they're not sure why they feel bad after a conversation because somebody has has said some form of a microaggression and they know that they feel bad but they can't really name it because it was ex- it wasn't explicit enough and and there are three types of microaggressions micro insults um, micro assaults and micro invalidations but microaggressions are are really ways in which People are in conversation or interaction and are in some way offended by language that is offensive, but feels like it shouldn't be. So the example I was getting around to was when somebody says, oh, that I'm so surprised you raised your hand. Um, You never speak up in class. Or I love that hair. You usually never do it like that. And whatever the that is, it's an underhanded compliment. So it could be around a certain kind of ethnic or racial hair type. And somebody is in some ways actually privileging a hair type that's not like that. Or somebody's making an assumption about the kind of person who raises their hand in class or the kind of person that they assume participates in a classroom. How can you become aware of them? I'll let my colleagues echo this as well. Um, You can come to opportunities to learn about them. You can find infinite resources on the internet and you can work to kind of hone your ear to the ways in which people often engage in saying what we call backhanded compliments, right? Something where you feel yucky at the end of the interaction. That's a microaggression to the person who kind of experienced it. And you can empower people to not feel gaslit when they share their experiences um, and to feel as though whatever they've experienced from a conversation to affirm that because it's likely not been the first time that they felt that way and to have them articulate that to you to say, you know, "Ah, that interaction made me feel really uncomfortable. Did you see what they said? Am I the only one who heard that? Um, to say, no, you know, I heard that. Or if you're confused to say, you know, I think I know what you're talking about. Can you explain what you feel happened? And, you know, I want to understand your perspective because I want to support what obviously feels like an interaction that that hurt you. And it sounds like appropriately it hurt you. I think that um, there's so much to learn here. And with Catalina bringing up doing reading and engaging and then in spaces that you might feel uncomfortable. I know that I've said things that, you know, I may learn later on that was a microaggression and you kind of cringe a little bit like, oh, I wish I wouldn't say that. Do I go back to the person? Is it like been too long? 
but I think being open to being uncomfortable and hopefully having some trusting relationships where someone can say the way that you frame that could be taken as a microaggression. And I think this is, you know, especially as a white woman, you have to be open to how you interact with others, especially from historically excluded populations and know that you're going to, you're going to make mistakes. Like you're going to say things and we can't always put the burden on the DEI office to educate us on this. We also need to educate ourselves and continue, you know, reading and learning about it. But this is a space that I feel like I have personally have a lot of space to grow and it's just continuous work. You know, I had a situation this week where I definitely said the wrong thing to someone and I felt so bad about it. And I tried my best to go back and just say, Hey, I am so sorry for what I said. And I hope I did not offend you, but I totally understand if I did. And just trying to validate the feelings that person may have been feeling in that moment and just own that maybe what I said wasn't great, or maybe it wasn't offensive, you know, just, I wanted to make sure that I didn't invalidate whatever they were feeling. And I think that's really important. I also personally am learning more about microaggressions and how I can be more aware of them. So in the spirit of somebody that also may not know, what should they do if they feel like they've witnessed a microaggression? What's waiting too long? Do you always address it? Do you talk about it as soon as you're aware of it? Like how can a faculty member see an aggression and what should they do moving forward if they witnessed one in their class? So in a classroom, you know, I would encourage faculty to really own their positionality of of responsibility and of power. The truth is, is they're a professor and they deliver an evaluation that yields to a grade. So by virtue of their position, they have power. So if they've witnessed a microaggression, there is a need for them to call it out as soon as possible in a public way and not in a punitive way. As a professor, as an educator, it's something important to do and to engage it generously to say, you know, I want to stop on that comment that was just made. There's probably a way that that comment could be interpreted that would have these other sides. But I do think it's important that we recognize the valences that that comment can have and the ways it could be interpreted. There's no blaming happening there. There's just a, you know, here's some education. In terms of witnessing a microaggression, I think in a more lateral environment, where you're on a team and you're a fellow team member, I think you really have to ask yourself, what role do you play in that team? And who, what identities you bring to that team? You, you have to consider your privilege when you witness microaggressions and you have to consider your experiences. So if you're somebody who, who always experiences them, you may be more likely to be like, hey, that comment was not okay. Because you always, ha- you have that anger of like, this happens to me. Maybe you're someone who's like, I never experienced that particular microaggression. What's my role? Your role might be to reach out to somebody who, whose identity mirrors yours if they engaged in saying that microaggression to say, hey, I know you probably didn't mean it that way, but that comment could have been interpreted by insert name of team member in these other ways. Did you know that? You don't have to do it in front of the person who experienced it and indefinitely should not be approaching somebody who you feel experienced a microaggression and say, hey, I saw that you experienced a microaggression because it's actually making a lot of assumptions about how willing they feel to share what is maybe their death by a thousand paper cuts moment. And if you haven't, if you don't share a lot of identities with them, it can feel like a really imbalanced situation. 
So I think it's hard. I think it's about doing your work about what you bring to the table, what identities you occupy, and what are ways in which you can empower those who might share some of those identities. And it's about educating fellow people who have your identities, especially if you're white and hold other privileged identities. I feel like this needs to be its own episode. I feel like there's so much to learn and so much to talk about that I might have to pull you in a next episode, Catalina, to talk about more microaggressions. I have so many more questions. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm sorry for being long-winded on microaggressions, but I really could go on and on about them. No, I think it's a very important topic that people need to be aware of because like we've mentioned, sometimes you might not be aware of how your words can hurt somebody else. And I think in a classroom setting where you have so many different people interacting with one another, you want to make sure that your students feel safe and heard and validated. And I think microaggressions could come up and I think it's important to be aware of them and how to essentially next steps of if that were to happen. So Thank you. And I will be reaching back out to you for a future episode. So our listeners stay tuned. (laughs) So we are going to switch gears again. Um, And this question is all about, is there more to college than just being admitted? How can you ensure that all students have access to everything they need? This is my constant daily question is how can students access everything that they need, which can be many different things and different resources. One area is obviously educating students on different resources that your university has, but in terms of making sure that students have access to everything they need, oftentimes there's an information like it's heavy up front. So you have orientation, you have lots of welcome emails. There's lots of events that might happen and students can get overwhelmed quickly, especially during the pandemic stage. We've been relying on communication like email often. There's been lots of new regulations on and off in terms of what you can and cannot do. And so we've been trying to streamline our communication in our office, um, using Canvas as a platform to share certain announcements, using a newsletter. And now we're going a little bit further to say, okay, we need to educate our faculty instructors who are in direct contact with students so that they can upfront say, or put in their syllabus. You know, we have a counseling center that you can access. Uh, We have a student disability access center, which you have the legal right to ask for accommodations and, and faculty must adhere to those accommodations that are requested. The advice that I often give students who I meet with, they're maybe facing some challenges like connecting or feeling like on the margins of UVA when they come is finding your community. And that's so important in terms of work or being a student or what have you is like finding the place that you feel like you belong. And sometimes that takes some extra work for folks, especially at a predominantly white institution such as UVA. But I just go back to finding your people that you feel comfortable with. Connecting is a good starting place. So you can ask questions, find someone who can help you outside of the classroom, a friend, a partner, a peer, a mentor. We can do a better job of educating faculty on resources, plugging students in, and kind of streamlining communication and encouraging them to to find their community. Burn for somebody who primarily works with online students, do you feel like it's harder to be able to understand and know if a student is having access issues because they're not physically on ground? Definitely think so. I feel like sometimes sending an email can feel very prohibitive or like a very daunting task for some folks. And then I can be on the receiving end of some very frustrated student emails. And sometimes they come to me as their last resort. I got one last week that was like, 
Canvas isn't working. I can't get into my email. What do I do? I'm so frustrated. It can be really frustrating to that student who's online, who isn't here in Charlottesville or maybe even in Virginia. So I always make sure to affirm back to affirmation, just affirm however they're feeling before I try to go into problem solving mode, because they're also going to have a, a written record of our email exchange, right? So if I'm like, hey, that was really rude. I'm not going to help you. Well, how is that helpful? So I feel like I always try to be understanding and compassionate towards students, especially for, for students who aren't physically on ground because they're already at a distance and separated. So if me making them feel better by saying, oh, I really understand how frustrating that can be, that's a really easy thing for me to do as a staff member. And I try to do it every time I handle a student. I'm just going to add one thing that I think is important. There is power in just listening. So, and I do this too, I jump straight to solutions. And oftentimes students don't want that. They want someone to hear them. And what Bern is saying in terms of that email or a student pops into my office and is like, this is what I'm experiencing. This is what I'm feeling. When I first started here, I was like, I can connect you to this. I can do this. And then the more I backed off of that, the more students trusted me to come back again and again until we were ready to find a solution. Well, and I think that that act of listening and leaving space for a student to air whatever is going on with them is such an empowering act of affirming their truth. And as a result of that, they're able then to feel like some room and bandwidth is opened up for their own action towards resolving. You know, it's not a passive act to listen. And I think a lot of times that may lead to somebody, you know, self-solving whatever's going on, self-soothing whatever's happening with them. And so maybe reinterpreting that listening, right? It's not passive. Jessica's so right. Well, this is a great segue into my last question. So we talked about just listening can help a student feel valued or heard and be able to make them feel comfortable coming back to you. So what are some other actions that faculty and students can take to create a classroom culture where everybody would feel respected or valued or accepted by others? When I see this question, it reminds me of being in the classroom. And one of my taglines, kind of the first days was always, we create, we co-create. I'm responsible for certain things as your instructor. You're responsible for certain things as students of this classroom. You are co-responsible to one another, and I have a responsibility to you and to myself. It's not an equal responsibility, but it's pretty balanced in terms of creating a classroom culture. And, you know, I would tell my students, I am bringing my energy and my humanity every time I'm in this classroom. Some days that energy will be really high. Some days that energy will be really low. Sometimes that humanity will be on full display and I won't be bringing my best self, but I can promise you I'll be transparent about that. And I'm asking the same of you. And so I think that's part of that value and that accepted piece. I wonder when we ask a faculty member to be that vulnerable, to say, I am struggling today because I have this. You know, as a white woman, I can say this easily. If I'm a black male in our school where there's only a couple other black males and I, if I share something that's vulnerable, it's taken the wrong way. I yeah, I agree, Jessica. I, yeah. When I think about vulnerability, it's, it, it's kind of 
setting the stage for it to be true without the specifics, right? So rather than justifying like, here's what's going on in my life today, because yeah. there is really the need for those boundaries, both to be modeled, but to also be practiced when you think about that power that's so real in any classroom environment. When I was a third grade teacher in another life, um, I started every day uh, of school, I would stand at the door and I would shake my students' hands and like look them in the eye. And it was a great way to do a pulse check of how they were doing kind of on the, on the down low, right? I wasn't like, are we having a good day or a bad day? But if you know, if they made eye contact, they smiled and they came in, it was like, okay, this is a good day. Um, and then obviously conversely, you know, if a limp hand or a lack of eye contact and they trudged in, maybe a not so good day. But I think that can really translate in higher ed. You know, Zoom, we have those nonverbal reactions where we can be like a thumbs down or, you know, or we can send an emoji in the chat where if we're not having a good day. And I think that goes really well with Catalina's point about we don't need to share specifics, but we can do a pulse check um, whether or not we're having a good day, bad day or whatever. Okay, well, I think we are at time, but it seems like I should just have a separate episode for every single question that I have asked, because there is so much great stuff that you guys have brought. And I'm like, ah, oh, we just don't have the time, but I would love to talk to you guys about this more. So I thank you for giving our listeners and me just a taste of all of these great and practical ways that we can encourage students' feelings of belonging on campus and even in their classrooms. And that concludes this episode of Designed for Online. Belonging is such an essential human need, and some students may find it difficult to feel that sense of belonging on a university's campus. So I hope my conversation with Catalina, Jessica, and Byrne gave you some practical tips and insights on how you can ensure that your classroom has a welcoming environment for our diverse learners. If you have an exciting topic you want to hear on future Designed for Online episodes, feel free to email me at ac8ga at virginia.edu. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.